guys, Alicia here. Wanted to share a little note before we get into the episode today with Aaron Riddell. So I guess this is my first trigger warning or just warning in general that we're going to be covering some topics in this episode that are challenging. But this is Humanize the Hustle, so we cover things like this because we know that everyone is going through something and you're not alone. So in this episode, we cover topics around loss, miscarriage, and grieving. Erin shares a beautiful human story around those topics, and for any of you that are sensitive to that or that it triggers something in you, that you want to avoid, um, warning that we're going to be covering some of that, but it's a fantastic episode and really appreciate Aaron joining me. So on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Humanize the Hustle. I'm Alicia Slaughter and I created this podcast for health conscious corporate professionals, working parents and entrepreneurs. Join me and special guests as we talk about the latest in mind body wellness. Here we believe that health and happiness is non-negotiable. And just a reminder, this podcast is for the purpose of education only and is not a replacement for medical help. Please seek out the help of a trained professional for help with your specific situation. Okay, now on with the episode. Hey, hey, welcome back. Today, I'm excited to have an old friend of mine, Aaron Riddell, on the podcast. Erin is kind of superhuman and not sure how she does it all. So not only is she a mom to four kids, but somehow also finds time to be a skincare specialist, a trainer for Oncology Spa Solutions, part of the wellness team at Blackberry Farm, a Reiki master, and the owner of a King's Lodge and Farm in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. A multitasking mama for sure. She's also a survivor of trauma, grief, and unspeakable loss. Erin's story is one of resilience and the power of the human spirit to never give up on happiness. I'm excited to have her join me today to talk about how she got through some of the darkest days of her life and healed through unwavering hope, nature, horses, breath and meditation, energy balance, and self-care. Erin is an inspiration to me and so many others, and I'm so grateful to have her on the show today. Welcome, Erin. Thanks, Alicia, for having me on. So first off, I let's go back many, many, many years. <laughs> and I was trying to remember how we first met. So was it preschool or kindergarten? So I, I'm not sure which one, but it goes all the way back that far um, at Montessori school in, um, yeah. in Aptos there. And yeah, it was, so it's interesting though, how we have kind of interjected in each other's lives in different periods throughout the the ages too, which is which is really cool. Right. Forty years later, right. I think it was uh, maybe the Redwood class with it with was teacher, the uh, Redwood Lu- class <laughs> teacher Lucy. Yes, and um, yes, and then. Yeah. And then I know high school for sure. There might've been something else in between. Um, and now, you know, I love just keeping up with you on social media and seeing how beautiful your life has turned out and all of that. Um, so moving to present day, I think it's so cool what you're up to. So maybe talk a little bit about who Erin Riddell is today and what she's passionate about. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It meant a lot to me when we connected and talked about this. And um, so I'm just really happy to be able to share um, kind of where we are today and all we've been through. And and I love that it's through somebody like you that we have such a connection throughout the years. So let's see, who am I today? (laughs) Um, Well, First and foremost, I would say, you know, I'm a mom. Being a mom for me is such a massive job, challenge, passion, like right, every all of the above. Um, I think that raising young humans into this world is such a an incredible um, job and an incredible gift. And um, so that that is definitely priority in my life. Um, along with being a business owner and everything else, but my husband and I, um, and 
the family, our kids, we own and operate a lodge and farm in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Um, so we have, we're in Wares Valley, actually 15 minutes from Pigeon Forge in Gatlinburg. So it's a, it's a, um, we have right at the entrance of the national park and we have a horse farm. So we have 22 horses on property, um, that we care for and eight of them I own, um, my husband thinks that's just a little too many, but I don't. So <laughs> um, I'm very passionate about my horses. And then we have potbelly pigs, goats, sheep, chickens. Um, we farm our own hay for the horses. And so our kids, they work on property uh, daily. You know, they're doing chores. They're helping with things. Um, we're fully family run. We, we do have a couple other people that work for us. Um we have a main lodge on site, a small cabin. So we're, it's kind of, I look at it really as kind of like a private family farm um, resort kind of that you can come stay at and really have the experience of connecting to nature and the mountains and everything and not just the touristy parts of this area. So um, life is really consumed with, you know, running my kids around. So they're in, they're going to be an eighth ninth and 10th grade this year. And then our oldest son is 23. Um, he's in the Marine Corps. So there's, you know, kind of all over the place with kids and then, um, and then running, running the farm and running the lodge. Um, I have been a skincare specialist for 25 years, so I still have my hand in that. I love it. It's my passion. Um, but it's very, very, very part-time for me anymore, but it's still a huge part of who I am and what I do. I have private clients that I see, um, and I do spend some time at Blackberry Farm. Um, as well as help with um, oncology spa solutions. Our property out here is actually our uh, East Coast training facility for them now. So we host uh, retreats out here where we train uh, skincare specialists to be able to treat somebody that would be going through cancer or had gone through cancer. So yeah. many things <laughs> is who I am many today. <laughs> I love that. And, um, I have, I did not grow up with horses, but I have two girls. I know your girls ride, which is especially so awesome. my oldest. Yes. And, and I can tell you that you can never, from their point of view, you can never have enough horses. Oh, no. So, Oh no, it is, it is. I'm always looking for, I'm always open for more. I'm always like, Oh, you know, and I just, I just absolutely, it's in my heart and soul. And it is, it is definitely a lifestyle as I'm sure your daughter would, would be able to relate yeah. with. My oldest. Yeah. That's, um, I mean, that's all she does. She works for a trainer down in uh, Santa Monica wow. and teaches horse lessons. And that's what that's she does so every cool. day. And that's her passion. I don't know that she'll ever do anything else since she was four years old. She has looked me dead in the eye and told me she's going to be a horse trainer. And anytime I've suggested anything else, I'm the biggest <laughs> idiot in the whole wide world. And I don't think you can, once you get that horsey bug, oh, there's, there's oh, no. no getting rid of it. No, it, it yeah. becomes who you are. Like my, my husband has really just succumbed to this fact that this is yeah. how it is. And he's very supportive. And my family is that, I mean, I really am just slightly obsessed with horses. So I, I understand yeah. your daughter a hundred percent. Well, they're so therapeutic and my daughter's connection to horses and, um, you know, being outside and being with animals, I mean, um, it's really just so, so good for you. So, um, that the cost of it sometimes can be a little stressful, but yes, um, <laughs> but that's okay. Well, uh, sounds like you have plenty of room and they're also and an intricate part of our business. So they yeah. really, uh, most of them actually kind of pay for themselves because we offer like guest writing and I do some lessons and we do private boarding. So I've structured my life to kind of support my horse. <laughs> yes. That's a, uh, that's smart. Yes. <laughs> Very smart. And where you guys are right now looks so beautiful. And I've seen that you guys do weddings and events and um, it looks like such a great use of such a beautiful property, uh, not only for yourself, but sharing with others. And that's so amazing. Um, and so that's, that's present day, Erin. And so let's go back in time again. Um, and I know that you had a life altering experience where, when you were a young adult and maybe you can talk a little bit what happened yeah. there and how that really changed your life at that yes, time. Absolutely. Um, so actually this year will be 20 years, um, since, you know, I think 
I think you can attest to this. Like our, our teenage years were a bit of a struggle, right? Like there was, we, we grew up in a rough crowd and there was, it was, it was, there was struggle. And so, um, you know, I had kind of been coming out of just stuff from there. And then I had been, um, gotten married at 21 to Ollie. And when, so 20 years ago, your high school sweetheart. Yes, we were together for gosh, seven years. I mean, at that age, at that time, I mean, that's a very long time when you're 21. And, you know, um, and so when I was 20, I had just turned 23. And it was um, July 4th of 2023 that, um, I got a phone call at three o'clock in the morning that my mom had been killed in an accident. And, you know, I think that's, that's a phone call that you never really recover from just the, the trauma of, of getting a call that a family member has been killed in an accident is just a very shakes you to your core. You're in shock. It, you know, I think about that, um, that time and even just relive it even now, sometimes what, what that felt like that night. Um, you know, I, like I said, my mom was, I was very, very close with my mom. Um, I was a young woman, you know, I, she was young. She was actually only, uh, nine years older than I am now, which is super weird for me to conceptualize like time wise right now. Um, but anyhow, she, I had got received that news, um, life really just kind of hit me. You know, I was her only child, so I had to deal, you know, I mean, I lived in Truckee, California at the time and Ollie and I had just gotten married and, you know, now we were like kind of navigate her death and had to deal with all, you know, just her stuff, her estate, all the, all the stuff that, that death comes with. Right. I mean, everything that things you don't think about or know, or, I mean, it's just such a process. Um, and, and then I think it was about 12 weeks after that. So it, it was like I think September, October of that year. So we were still like reeling from her death because um, she was a big influence in mine and Ollie's life. And he, him and I were on our way out to dinner and he, him and I had been mountain biking and his ribs were hurting and we got... I was like, just go to the ER. Like, let's just get a chest x-ray. Your rib might be broken. He was like, oh, like, you're so annoying. Like, this is stupid. I don't want to go. You know, all these things. I'm hungry. <laughs> um, and I just, something was like, no, like, he's. it feels weird when he breathes. I don't know. So I took him in, and they were even just like, look, if he broke a rib, there's not a lot we can do. I don't know if you want to pay for a chest x-ray or, you know said, yeah. And they took one and we sat there and we sat there and we waited and, and the doctor came in and he looked at us and he had this very weird look on his face. And we were like, you know, something in me was like, that's weird. You know, there was this energy there. And he was like, sir, were you in like a major accident? I mean, where are you? What kind of accident were you in? He was like, not my, I don't know. I just like went off the bike trail on my mountain bike like it wasn't that big of a deal and he's like well we don't know what's in your chest but there's a massive massive obstruction in your chest and we we need you to lay down like right now we need to IV you now like this is this we don't know what this is like we don't something is terribly wrong with you and we were just like and he I remember him I can still see him sitting there and he was you know like I'm hungry. Like I'm hungry. I'm going to dinner. So confused. Like <laughs> I'm on my way to get a burrito. Like this isn't really <laughs> fitting in my time, you know? Um, and it, everything there kind of tunnel vision, it blurred. Um, and they, you know, I'm told, I've told the story a hundred times and sometimes I cry and sometimes I don't. Um, they, they, kind of pulled me aside. They started just sticking in with needles and it was like, you could tell like there was like trauma was <laughs> something was happening that wasn't good. And there was a frantic, there was a frantic trying to connect to the energy of the doctors. Yes. I can. Only yes. imagine. And I was just like looking and here I'm 23. My mom just got killed. I'm like already just what's going on. And then I'm like, what, like what is happening? <laughs> you know? And the doctor pulled me aside and he's like, 
ma'am. Like, I got to be super honest with you right now. And I was like, okay. And he's like, we sent that x-ray up to Reno because we don't know what it, we don't have the ability here. We sent it to Reno. And like, he is about to, his aorta is about to burst. Like he's about to die, like this close. And I was like, what the, like, what? And he's like, you need to call his family now. He's like, you, like, Reno, I haven't told this part in a while, so. Um, Reno won't take him. They're like, this is way too big for Reno. Like, he's going to Stanford. He's airlifted to Stanford. Um, And they said, you know, we have to be super honest that, um, See, this is trauma. Like I didn't didn't know. Sometimes it hits you just like, because I tell the story, but I don't tell the details sometimes. So bear with me as I breathe. Um, But I'm glad to share this because this is a good thing for people to understand layers of trauma, which is what happened to me essentially and what happens to a lot of people. Um, So anyhow, they said, we have to be on another thing we have to tell you is we're actually not expecting him to show up at Stanford alive. Oh my God. And I was like, wait, what? Like, no, like that, like that can't happen. You know? Um, yeah. So they said, you know, you need to call his family. Like where's his family? Cause they were in Santa Cruz, you know, they need to be, they need to be at the hospital. They, they need to be there. They need to be there to meet there. Like you can't ride in the helicopter with him. You have to drive. So I'm in like Tahoe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like Tahoe to Stanford. Yeah. Um, and Luckily, I had a friend there, thank goodness, that came and drove me. But we, and the whole thing, they were like, the whole time, it was like, you cannot tell him that this is that bad, that this is this bad. We need him to remain as calm as possible if he's going to survive. You cannot, you can't like go say goodbye to him. Like you have to, like, you have to hold it together. But you're this is probably the last time you're going to see him. It was like, what? <laughs> I mean, it was, not talk about just like process. the whole, my brain was not even like there, you know? So anyhow, I call his family and nobody believed me. His family's like, he got in a car accident? I'm like, no, <laughs> he fell off his mountain bike. Well, how bad was it? Why is he going to die? I'm like, I don't know. Like it was this major, like, Nobody knew, but what it was is he had a genetic defect and he had an aortic aneurysm that nobody knew about for years. Mm. And this is what they found on the, on the x-ray. The mountain bike had nothing to do with it. It's just the reason that got him in. Yeah. So anyway, finally they met there. We went down long story short. He, um, you know, doctors flew in from New York. I mean, he was this big old or case. He made it there alive. A, he made it there alive. Then they said, you know, he has to have a massive surgery. We're flying a doctor in from New York. Um, he, they had him on all these drugs. So he was like losing his mind. He kept telling me that like, this was, they were trying to do something to him. Really nothing was wrong with him. And it was an experiment and I had to break him out. I mean, it was like he lost cause they had him on so many drugs that they've had him so doped up and so they essentially decided to put him in a medical coma um and never once you could tell him what was going on no I was trying I was well once at the hospital when he was really losing it I was trying to but he had already he was already so far not understanding that he didn't even what I was saying to him he was like no that's not what's happening like he had already checked out to some other place on meds that they had him on and he, um, but he was getting agitated. So they just decided they needed to put him out altogether. And so I had to meet with the doctors cause they're like, look, we thought he was going to go into emergency surgery, but this is way worse than what we've ever dealt with. And so we can't because we don't know what we're doing. So I need to have fly a doctor and we need to do this and that. And so here I'm like, I mean, I have the same clothes on that I've had. I have nothing. I mean, my dogs are still like needing to be fed at home. I mean, it was just like, boom, at the drop of a hat. And so um, we ended up, he ended up going into surgery. They did say he had like a 90% chance of being quadriplegic if he made it out of surgery. And if he even made it out of surgery, surgery ended up being 36 hours long. 
which is massive. I mean, that's unheard of. They had to switch out surgeons because they can't only operate for so long. He, um, he made it like he made it against all odds. Like he was this miracle child of Stanford. I mean, every rejoicing. And I mean, like it was this massive, massive accomplishment. I mean, I think he was on the news. Like they wrote reports on him because they had accomplished a full aortic replacement from heart to groin. And that hadn't really been done before. So he was cut like in, not down this way that we would think down the chest. He wrapped, his scar wrapped all the way around the body because he had to essentially like, it was just crazy what happened. He made it. We lived up there for six weeks at Stanford. I slayed in a cot in his room. You know, he slowly came, kind of came back to who he was, but he was never who he was before. He was always different. He was always you know, it, he dealt with a lot of anxiety. Um, he, you know, obviously at this point, I kind of had even forgotten that my mom had just died because you know, I, I was like just thrown in right to this. And, and so he ended up, um, he was in a wheelchair. I wheeled him around everywhere. I mean, I'm talking about, and I'm just being real and raw, like the poor man couldn't even wipe his own butt. Like I wiped his butt for him for months uh, I mean, it was this massive caretaker job and we got him. And just a reminder, you're 22 at this time. Yes. Yeah. 23. Yeah. yeah 23. 23. I look back at that now and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's young. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, my daughter, you have, you have a 23 year old, right? Yes. My son is 23. And I remind right. him sometime and- of what he's <laughs> he's my stepson, but he's my son, but he, he, I I remind him of sometimes of what I was doing at his age, you know, and those, so we got him home. It was a rough, rough, rough time. And it was, you know, anxiety, depression, um, all sorts of things that he was dealing with. Cause here he's a 25 year old man that just got everything stripped from him. He can't even do what he wants to do. He can't even go to the bathroom by himself. He can't do, you know, so it was really, really rough. And then, um, here we're not even like, and still like my mom dying was still in the background. Right. Like that hadn't even been like dealt 12 weeks. Yes. Dealt with. Like we were literally still having to go pack up like her house and moving. I mean, it was just a crazy time. And, um, in that it was about, so he was at home probably, I don't know, probably nine months of this care, I mean, caretaking, and he got better. He did. He got to where he had a cane when he walked and then he could do more and he could, you know, and so he got to where he started, he really started to have hope again for life and, you know, and, and we would have better, more better days than not good days. And, you know, things got okay. And actually during that time, um, I had also gotten pregnant. And so, um, this gave us a very, you know, we were both very excited, just like it gave us a distraction, right? It gave us a happy distraction from what we were dealing with on a daily basis, which was also lots of doctor's appointments and a lot of stuff like that. So, um, we, um, we're down in Stanford, just regular checkup, you know, and we went every eight weeks and they would check him and, And the cardiologist walks in and he's like, man, like your valve's leaking and we don't want your valve to leak because everything else is good, but they never replaced the valve. The valve was still his. And they said, man, we're just going to have to do a scheduled surgery. Just a little, just, it's just little, little, it's just little, like you survived the big one. Like you're fine. Immediately we left that appointment and he was just like blank. And he looked at me and he's like, I'm not doing it. And I'm like, you have to do it. You know, I'm like, you're crazy. Like, you have to do it. Like, you've made it this far. You can't not do it, you know? And he's like, Aaron, I'm not, like, I can't do it. I can't, like, I can't do it. I physically can't do it. I mentally can't do it. So the doctor talked to him and they explained, like, look, man, like, if you don't do it, (laughs) like, life expectancy is not good. So, you know, here I am pregnant. And he's like, all right, like I got to, I got to be a man and do it because I need to live for you. And I need to, this is, and I have to do it, but I'm not happy about it. You know, I mean, he just was, he just didn't feel it from day one. And so it was a scheduled surgery and we got all ready. And I can remember that morning and 
you know, he showered and we took him up there at like four in the morning, checked him in, you know, went over all the, if this happens, you know, you, what do you want me to do? You know, all the things you have to sign if he doesn't make it and da, da, da. And I was just like, oh, like whatever. And he's like, let's not even think about that. Just sign it. Just sign it. And he, but he looked at me and he's like, but for real, if I don't make it, like you have to let me go. And, and I was like, I know, I know. Like, I promise you, I won't let you live not in full, like in, you know, won't let you live like that. I won't let you live not, you know, fully living. So I I understand. And then it was just like, okay, but that's not going to happen. So we're good. And they wheeled him back and, and we looked at each other and I could see him getting wheeled back and, um, surgery was, you know, they came out and they were like, well, it looks a little worse than we thought. It's going to be a little longer than we thought, but it wasn't anything major. And we were all, you know, family was there. And then he, he came out of surgery. It was like eight hours. And so the family was like, okay, everyone can go. And, uh, that was, um, I stayed that night in the waiting room in a chair, slept in a chair. And the next morning they said, you know, we're going to wake him up and we'll let you know. And so um, I remember my phone rang and it's funny because I had like my first cell phone. It was this weird little Nokia, like, you know what I mean? It was like nothing. Yeah. Well, I don't even think it was a flip phone yet. I don't even think those existed. I think that was like before them when they were just the little walkie talkie looking things. Yeah. And I saw that Stanford was calling me and I'm like, that's weird. Cause I was down at the cafeteria and I'm like, Hey, and they're like, you need to get up here, please. Like, um, are, are you still in the building? And I said, yeah. So I went up and they, and I could, again, it was the face, right. It was the look on the face of, of the nurses. And they're like, well, he's not waking up, but we don't know what's going on. And we're going to run some tests. We're going to run some tests, you know, I'm like, okay. They're like, this happens. This happens. You know, they, they still were like, it was like, ah, it's okay. Like, and they wheeled him down to CT and they came back and then I could hear over the loudspeaker, you know, they paged his doctor, his surgeon, and they paged his, the cardiologist and they started paging. And I was like, I remember it's like, fuck, you know, like just that, like I knew something. Um, Heart drop. And I went back and I can still, I don't think I'll ever forget the surgeon's face in the hallway. And he just, grabbed me and he started crying and he just was like I'm so sorry and it was like wait what (laughs) why are you sorry like what's he's like I don't know what happened I don't know I don't know what happened but um his whole brain is bleeding like I don't know what happened um I was like I don't know, time stopped. I mean, you know, and I'm pregnant, right? I was like, like six or eight weeks, not far, not super far, but, um, and I was there by myself because everybody left because they was going to wake up and then it was going to be fine, you know? And so I just was like frozen and, um, I went in there with them and, and, uh, I don't know. It was so, I mean, I think back on it, it's just still like right there sometimes. And, um, and I just started calling his family. Addison said like, I don't know. I don't know. Just come here. Like, so, you know, so then everybody started coming, everybody started coming and, um, they just said, you know, you're going to have to make a decision. And I was like, what? (laughs) This wasn't, I wasn't supposed to have to do this. Like I wasn't, you know? And, uh, so I laid there with him in that bed for quite a few days because I couldn't decide. Right. I couldn't because you think before you think before you're like, well, of course, like I'll just pull the bottom. Like I'll just, it's, that's what I'll do until <laughs> it's actually your decision. And they're so yeah. young. Do you know? And you're like, 
I mean, I remember even thinking like, well, I could just sit him like this in my living room and I'll just take care of him forever. Like, right. that's fine. He'll be there. You just want every little last minute. Yeah, he'll just be there and that's fine. I'll take care of him. And uh, uh, obviously the body starts to, you know, he was changing and he was, he wasn't there anymore. And I, I was there for, I think it was probably the third day that, you know, the social worker would come in, they send in all the people and the, and then I knew, I knew by, I knew the promise I had made to him before I went in, he went in. And, right. That, that must've been playing over yeah, in your head. And I knew, it. I just knew like, but that, that even those, during those days, it's not like I was sitting there deciding, like I knew the whole time. So, um, we went through that and I, th- I think probably this, the, um, one of the hardest days of my life was walking out of that room with him for the last time. So I did donate his organs, um, which was really a fantastic um, thing for me because I got to actually meet and get letters from the recipients and see whose lives he changed and stuff. So, but when you do that, they have to go into surgery. They don't take them off the machine right there in the room. Um, And so I had to walk out before they wheeled them into surgery and, I still don't know how I did that. And I still look back on that. Like, how, how do you do that? I don't know. I don't even know. I remember, I think at one point I had to run because otherwise like I would have never left, you know? Um, yeah. So I left the hospital and then three weeks later I ended up suffering miscarriage. And um, so I think, you know, stress, trauma, I mean, you name it. I don't know. <laughs> Fate. I don't, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't meant to be. And um and so I remember like my lowest point in life, like still to date, the lowest point in life was that day I was laying in my bed and it was a bad miscarriage and they had to give me medicine that essentially just, you know, tears your insides out. And um, I remember laying there just going like, oh my God, like my, my life got torn out from outside and inside. And like, I didn't know who I was, what, like, I questioned everything. I just, I don't know. I, I. I'll never forget that day. That was the most hollow day, right? And so anyway, for many years, I went through a lot. I made a lot of mistakes, a lot of healing, a lot of stuff, a lot of, I mean, it just, I look back and I'm like, what? <laughs> like, how did I even get from there to here? But that that year, that year from 23 to 24. I mean, that's, it was just boom, 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 boom. So much so that what happened was it was layered trauma. And so it was like, I wasn't process. It wasn't like I started to just the years after that, the good five to eight years after that were just really, really, really crazy years. If I look back on how broken I was and how I just, I couldn't, process at all I could like the anxiety took over the I didn't want to leave my house I didn't I mean the amount of really like just total survivors like guilt being guilty I mean all of it of like why is it just me of like my whole family died and now it's just me like what do I do what do I so it was um that was definitely that year I can look at pictures of myself not knowing the date and I can tell you by my face if it was before that year or after that year. Um, yeah. Just because that was, that was the year that I say, you know, broke me. Yeah. Um, and, but also in breaking me totally cracked me open into, you know, into what I am today, you know, yeah. and I can see the gift in that. 20 years later, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. Aaron. But that, that was that year. And that, um, I still, you know, it's a daily process of, of stuff for me. Cause, uh, it was just one thing after another. So the layers mm-hmm. of it were, took a long, long time to, to sift through. And I'm still sifting <laughs> to right. this day. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And, um, you know, obviously like, sorry, never cuts it, but you do, you know, so terribly sorry for all of that. And, you know, why I was so interested in having you on, um, and, you know, in full transparency, something that I'm working through too, is like, you know, when you have these layers of one thing after another, after another, and, 
you know, if you look back on it and you even mentioned it, like high school is really crazy. And, you know, there was trauma that happened yes, in high school, Yes, you know, and there's like so many of us live with these layers and, you know, different varieties of layers. Um, yours obviously very, very extreme, but it's like, but it doesn't matter. There's all different kinds of layers, yeah. you know, there's all different kinds of depths and it carries a common thread. Yeah. So in, in transitioning in a little bit to your, your healing journey yes. and like, you know, yes. Aaron's healing journey. And I think one of the things that I've, and maybe you can relate to this is like, one of the things that I'm trying to settle in is like, after trauma, you're really never the no. same. And to expect no. that you're going to go back to being the same, mm-hmm. I think is like, like you were saying it broke you and like you rebuild like how you're going to be and how you're going to be still holding that trauma. And that trauma is like never going to go away. Like it's always going to kind of be there. So like what, what has your healing journey looked like, you know, and I know it's, it takes so long and you have to be like so patient and I'm working through that now and just giving myself a lot of forgiveness for maybe not feeling like I am where I am, but like people who are dealing with trauma, like what, what can we learn from Aaron's like healing journey? So at first I thought I really was on this healing journey of, I thought, okay, if I, you know, I'm going to, I was in a, like doing, I'm going to, I'm going to go to do yoga and then I'm going to meditate and then I'm going to go do a retreat. And then I'm going to do, 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 do all these things, um, which they're wonderful to do, but there is a, we put so much weight. Like I thought, well, if I do that, then I'm just going to feel better. Like I'm going to, I'm going to be able to feel like I used to. So I love that you brought up number one, you are forever shifted. Like there is a part of me during that time that also died, that also will never be the same. Um, that, and even in the word healing, I like to, when I work with people now through their healing, I have them understand we're not, we don't heal to get back to before it was. And there, that can be a common thought process. We actually heal. And what healing means is that we learn to create space for our trauma within ourselves in a way that it, it like actually elevates who we are. It elevates us and it puts us on this path of purpose and of um, being able to connect and share our story and, and, and let people know every single one of us deals with trauma of some sort, some bigger than others. Um, but as these layers happen, if we don't start to go internal and I mean internal in a sense, I know meditation's internal and that sort of thing, but something that I think trauma survivors and people don't like to talk about is that there is a guilt in getting better. There is, we get so attached to being broken by our trauma. We get so attached to, well, this happened to me, right? So I can feel this way, or this happened to me, which is why this, this, and this are happening to me. And we can really um, have our trauma hold us down and it feels like we owe it to our trauma. Like I, I don't, if I'm, if I'm healed and I feel even like if I grow to even better than I was before, isn't that wrong? Like how doesn't that, does that mean I don't care about what happened to me or does that mean that I'm over it or that I'm, there's a weird guilt in getting better sometimes for people that have been through trauma. Um, and so for me, I loved, you know, I was doing all these outward things and I, but I still was riddled with anxiety. I, I still was like self-loathing, beating myself up. Everything's daily things were hard. Um, I was super stressed all the time. And then it was like, you know, one day and I started working with a gentleman who started, we just started to, he, what he said was he, he called it, he helped me with radical responsibility and essentially what he did was he instilled in me, because when, when you're a victim of trauma, you often feel powerless. It leaves us feeling power, like we've lost our power. If something happens to you or you've been through something or it fe- you feel like you, you do feel like a victim of life. I remember, like, I was just like, this is like 
horrible what's happening and I, I don't deserve this. And I don't, you know, there's all things that, that we go through. And, um, but there is a point where we just make a choice that we take back our power that we, and that in taking back our power, we take, it's like transmuting, alchemizing. That's why I love the name of your um, company and your, your podcast and everything is alchemy. Trauma energy is powerful. Trauma energy can slam you down so hard, but it can also lift you up to the highest points of yourself. If it is alchemized in a way that can um, empower you and by, by, owning your power, you have to take radical responsibility for your life. You have, you get to look at every facet of your life and understand that you own every bit of it. Even the things that we connect back to the trauma, even when I decide to lash out at somebody or get upset because I've been through so much, I still get to own that. Like, well, no, I still chose to act that way. And this started to make me feel like, wow, I, I am powerful. I do have, I can still recreate my, my reality. Um, despite all these things that have happened to me, because what it's done is it's made me become radically responsible. Number one for who I am, but also I've seen, you know, losing my husband so young. I also, it made me understand that life's short. Like we get to, it doesn't matter what people think of you or what, you know, so-and-so's doing or this person's doing. I mean, we get to, we get to take our own power and do the things that we want because when your day comes that you're no longer here, nobody's going to really remember what you did or didn't do. Like we, we get to live all out. I mean, we get to follow our dreams and be who we really are and be unapologetically us because life is short. I've sat there with my husband on his deathbed and, and seen that in his eyes and seen that in myself. And so I don't ever let anything hold me back. I tell everybody exactly what I want to tell them. I take responsibility for everything in my life from the choices I make to the food I eat to the the things I choose to do and the the businesses and the work I want to do and I do that because I know what it's like to feel powerless I know what that feels like and I know how bad trauma can strip that of you and if there's one thing I could instill in people it's that if you can just stop and really sit with it for a little bit don't doing I, I like to do the yoga classes and do all that but sometimes we just need to sit with ourselves and feel the emotions and feel it and not run from it and not try to fix it and not try to heal it and not try to do yoga and move my body so that I don't feel sit with the feeling let yourself break down let yourself become a mess let that energy move through you and and hold you know be able to hold that space for yourself and and when I started doing that everything started changing for me and I no longer felt like I was just this total victim that I had no control and I was just waiting for the next punch that's all I just waited for the next punch for years and years and years what, what what's next what's next you know and I and I was able to move through that a bit by um understanding that it's up to me to create whatever reality that I want to create. So what, what do you think was the most effective to help you get unstuck? So you sat with it. So maybe you kind of floundered a little bit. Yeah. Oh, I floundered a lot. So, um, yeah. So like what, what and do then you, you learn to sit with yes. it and then there was a next phase and like, what did that look like that transition and, and what was helpful then? So I think the next phase was that, First of all, the sitting with it was so big. Um, I know, and you talked about like sometimes even when we're caretakers or our friends are going through something traumatic or healing from something traumatic and we don't know what to say or we don't know how to be. Um, you know, I love being around people who have been through something traumatic because I love to just say, you know what? You are absolutely right. You should feel this way. You are allowed to feel this way. I'm not going to try to make you feel better. I'm not going to say sorry. I'm not going to say anything to you other than I'm going to sit right here and just hold this space that you can completely give all your emotions to, no matter what you're feeling right now with zero judgment. And so I think that um, feeling the emotion, and but the key is, is once we're able to sit with it and, and 
and kind of and feel it in our body. Like, what does it feel like in my body? What is it, you know, what are the sensations? And from there, though, then we start to, I, I, there is this, I think, miraculous thing that happens when we sit with it and we start to get inspiration and we start to get, we start to actually sift through all of the grief and trauma feelings. And we start to get these, I call them divine inspirations. Just things get cleared enough. You get clarity of the mind by actually not trying to escape the horrible feeling of anxiety, trauma, you know, panic, even um, those things. There is this thing that happens. And then the key thing, though, is that you act on that. So when you start to get these good feelings of inspiration, even it might be, I feel like I just want to show somebody I love them today. I'm going to try to smile at people today. I'm going to send somebody a message. So I started to to shift and do high vibration things. So things that made me feel better, not that didn't cost money or I mean, just simply connecting, seeing somebody, maybe I'm walking down the street, making eye contact, smiling, um, things that I knew would start to make me feel better. Um, And I think that that taking action, we can't just, sit with it. We have to then start to take action, little bits of action, send somebody a message, tell somebody you love them that you haven't told in a really long time that you need to start to act as if like start to be this beacon of light. Right. And that is the transformation that happens when we sit with the feeling and we don't run from it. I ran from it for so freaking long. I moved across the country. I dated different people. I did this. I did that. I never wanted to sit with the horrid feelings of trauma because it was too hard. And I felt like, well, if I just did another yoga class and if I just found another meditation teacher, I just, then it would be okay. But I never like just let myself totally lose it. Do you know what I actually just sit there and totally lose it and not feel bad for it and not try to make excuses for it or make people, other people feel comfortable. I used to feel bad for other people that hung out with me because I didn't want them to be uncomfortable. Do you know what I mean? And so like being authentic, being your authentic self and letting that shine and then taking action. We have to take action. Like be, start to be a better person. Like make even if it feels weird, like start make connections with people. Trauma cuts our connections. Trauma makes, takes our power. We have to take action to start to slowly mend those little bits of fabric back into our lives, right? Those little things. And anybody can do it. You don't have to, like I said, it doesn't have to go meditate for an hour outside. Like just go out, feel the sunshine, smile at somebody, like say something nice. Human connection. Like start to. connection is really Yes, because when we are traumatized, we are scared of that because we know what can happen. You know, and, and, um, so that was a game changer for me and it wasn't in the big things. I guess that would be my biggest message. It's not in the big things. It's the little things. It's the little things you do every day. It's the little tiny things, the little connections, little, you know, I must send messages. I tell my husband, I love him all the time just because I know like I can, like, I'm so grateful that he's still alive today that I can tell him that. Because I know what it feels like to not have them alive and you want to tell them that. And so, you know, just high vibration things, but little bits, little bits. You don't have to do grandiose, massive things. And I think that's what holds people back. It looks, it's too hard. It's too big. It's too much. It's, it's easier to just stay where you are and stay small and stay stuck and stay in what we know. And Finding those little moments of joy, whether you acknowledge them or you create them, little things. Little things. Sounds like are super important to your your journey. And so you you had these multiple layers of trauma. You floundered for a little bit and recapping your journey. Let me let me know if I'm doing this right. And then you started, then you felt, then you just felt. And I don't know how many years that took of where you just broke down and felt what you needed to feel. Then it sounds like then you started to be okay. Now I need to start reigning in joy, finding joy, the little parts of joy. And then how do you feel like those those little those little pieces of joy that you started to find, like maybe we call them little sparks in your life? Like how did you get from that to creating what you have now? Um, I started I started taking huge risks. So as so 
energy compounds, right? So the more that we start doing little things, we what we do is we start to create evidence to the brain that things are possible and that we can feel good and that life can feel good again. And that we, um, and so our brain runs on evidence, our logical mind runs on evidence. So that's why these little tiny pieces of things that we're doing to feel better are so important. Um, and by the way, that's really, I'm going to yeah. pause really quick. That's interesting that you say that. Cause that's what my, my therapist has told me. She said, you have to believe that you can feel yes, better. You have to have evidence. So it's interesting. Yeah. And so you either, you, you create, so how did you start to believe that you could feel better? Like, do you remember, is there anything that, that, um, stands out to you? So it took me, first of all, let's say it took me 14 years of just trying and well, I don't know, you know, just, just, I don't know, just trying things like just, you know, and I didn't really feel good. And I made a million and one mistakes and I fell on my face a hundred times and all these things. And it was like, I think what clicked, like I said, is when I really started taking radical responsibility, I started with the little bits of joy, collecting evidence. What I was working with the gentleman I was working with, he like, you need to collect evidence. Your body doesn't think that any of this is possible right now. Your mind doesn't believe any of this. So even though you're doing all these things, your mind doesn't believe it. So I had to collect evidence that I could feel good, that my energy could feel high. So as I started collecting more evidence, it compounds, it becomes bigger and it snowballs and it starts to make you feel like super empowered. Like I can do big things. And I mean, I don't know. It was crazy. We, David and I had just dreamed of living in the mountains and we lived in Texas at the time. And we, you know, had, he worked for the city and I worked in a salon and we had the nine to five and we just kept dreaming and dreaming. And here I was still like collecting evidence that I could still feel okay and be okay and smiling at people and connecting at people. And, you know, I was slowly just building myself, rebuilding myself back up through tiny, tiny interactions. And then it started, like, I started to feel this push, like, you know what? Screw it. Like we want to live in the mountains. Let's go live in the mountains. Like I'm start. like we can do this. And so it, the, the little things, I know it's hard to fathom. Well, how did you do the big things? Well, it's because I did five gazillion little things and it, and it snowballed and it made me take huge risks and we sold everything and we quit our jobs and we saved enough money that we knew we had six months. And we had drove through this area one time on a road trip completely loved it, researched it, no, you know, did saw the cost of living, things like that and said, you know what, let's do it. And, but the reason we took that risk was because my vibrant, my energy was high because I had been really working on little tiny bits. And another really, really big part of healing through trauma is becoming radically honest to and, and truthful with people and being able to speak your truth and feel really good about it. And those little bits that I started speaking my truth for a few years started to build. And it really, it, it made me empowered enough to sell it all and take a risk. And that's what we did. And we came up here and, and we just, we bought our house and we worked on, we had didn't have jobs and we were like literally selling things on eBay and Amazon and I was traveling back to Texas and seeing some of my skincare clients and I was working a little bit at Blackberry Farm and you know we were just patchworking it at the time and we started we started working at this farm down here that we now own because the gentleman wanted us to feed his animals and offered to you know pay us some money on the side and that led to us working for him more and then he wanted to sell and he came to us and was like y'all are some of the hardest working people I've ever met. And I love your family and you want to buy the place and, you know, I can help you. We ended up, you know, he helped us um, do owner financing and, you know, the rest is history. But if we wouldn't have taken the risk, if we wouldn't have not only taken a risk, but also worked our butts off and, and been open to opportunities, like, you know, we would have been open to selling on eBay, selling on Amazon, doing what we needed to do to pay the bills so that we could, cause we knew something greater was out there. I just knew something greater was out there. Cause my heart just kept feeling more joy and more joy and more joy. And so, you know, even just, if you're just starting today and, and you're feeling really down today, or you're listening to this or something, it's like one thing today, just do one, like smile at one person a day and that's going to start your snowball. Yeah. That is a theme that's come up with a lot of people I talk to is to not underestimate the little things. 
And the little things consistently every day make such a huge difference. And I think like you were saying, you know, it's not the big things that it's the little things. So whether it comes to changing your diet, whether it comes to thinking positively, whether it comes to movement, whether it comes to making a change with your job, you know, like for me, for example, I work in corporate high tech full time. Um, I have to travel a bunch. It's a super high stress job. Yeah. And, but this is my passion. Yeah. So I don't necessarily like know where this is yeah, going to go, doing but it. I just do a little bit yes. every yes. day. And I kind of, you know, yes. I know that at some point, I don't know exactly what the outcome is going to be, but I, I do feel like all of these are little building blocks yes. and it like, and I love the other thing you said about like things take time and to not give up. And, uh, you know, the 14 years that it took for you to, you know, even get to a point to where you felt like you could start to, to think differently or move differently yes. or, you know, approach your life differently. I think that is such a testament, not only to your resilience, let me just say that, but, um, and your dedication to your life and to happiness, but also is such an inspiration for people. I feel like people want quick fixes. Yeah. There's no such thing. I mean, I would not, I live the most amazing life, like a life of my dreams with horses and a farm and all these things. And I would not be here if I gave up on your two or five or seven or nine or I mean it's like it just keep going and alignment you feel it in you and and also remember that miracles happen in the unknown the unknown is okay the unknown is actually a wonderful thing when you don't know what's going to happen because miracles happen there like literally I've seen it with my own eyes if we fill up all of our space and we already know everything how is anything miraculous ever going to come in? We have to have the unknown. We have to say, I'm showing up and I'm doing this because I love it. I don't know where it's going, but it feels great. Like what you're doing. I don't know where it's going, but it feels right. That's where like the amazingness takes place. Yeah. I love you so much. And I love all of this so much. So Um, what would you say kind of in closing? I mean, I feel like you've said so much and maybe it's just repeating something that you've said. So, you know, maybe someone who's feeling really stuck, maybe someone who is feeling, who has dealt with a lot of trauma and is just trying to get through day to day. Um, you know, what is one thing you just kind of remind them of in closing? no matter how many times you fall down or you quit or, you you know, you start a meditation practice and you stop and you start a breathing practice and you stop or whatever it is, just don't ever not get back up. Don't, it doesn't matter how many times you fall down. It doesn't matter how many times you have to pick yourself back up and go, Oh yeah, today I'm going to smile at people. Oh yeah. Today I'm going to drink water today. Today I'm going to nourish my body. Just always know, like for me, even if I, get derailed sometimes. I always know I just jump back on. I just keep, there's never where I just give up because that's just never an option. Because even if I fail, I just get right back up. Nothing is a failure. It's just lessons, 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 lessons. And as long as you make that commitment to yourself, no matter what happens, I always get back up. You can face anything. You can do anything. And even if it doesn't work out the first time, it'll work out, you know, the 50th time. (laughs) So just never give up on life. Never. Oh, girl. So um, how can people find out more about um, your where you yes. are in? in um... Um, so we're in uh, Wares Valley, Tennessee. Our website is a King's Lodge. It's a K-I-N-G-S, Lodge, L-O-D-G-E, uh, dot com. Um, and we have all our, our story photos. You can follow us on Instagram at a King's Lodge or Facebook. Um, and we update every day just about our animals, what we're doing. Like it's a really fun thing. And if you ever want to come out and experience the Smokies, talk about healing property and healing land. And it is, um, an incredible thing that we have here. And we do offer, um, healing with horses too, that I'm doing and all all kinds of programs. So uh, definitely check us out. I love that. And, um, thank you so much. Thank you for for having me and sharing your story. I'm so honored, um, that you got so raw and shared all of that. And, um, I know it's really going to meet the people who need to hear it and help them and, um, just really appreciate it. And I, 
I hope that we stay in touch after yes. this. And thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to Humanize the Hustle podcast. If you would like to get in touch with the show, email me at myalchemylife at gml.com or follow me on Instagram at wellnesswithalicia. And if you like the show, please share it with someone you love and make sure and give us a five-star review. Talk to you next time. And remember, health and happiness is non-negotiable. Thank you.